This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Hong Kong-based lawyer and author Anthony Dapperin joined me to talk all about his new book, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. Then, virologist Dr Sasha Stelzer-Braid, based at UNSW's Faculty of Medicine, joined me to talk about the behaviour of the new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, why it is so contagious and how we can keep it away from our homes, hands, face and surfaces. Then, finally, Professor Andrew Walter, who is an expert in international relations at the University of Melbourne, joined me to talk all about UK politics, including the election of Keir Starmer as the new UK Labor leader. I welcome Ben now on Skype. Hi there, Ben. Good morning. How are you? Morning. I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm okay. That's good. Now, obviously, uh, working from home is certainly a challenge for some. And uh, we just also heard for any of those listening who aren't just aware that the Victorian state government has announced what most of us um, thought would happen, which is that most learning in primary and secondary schools will be by distance. So that does put um, some parents in in a new situation. But of course, there are some exemptions and special cases. Uh, Ben, a lot is evolving very quickly in this space of coronavirus COVID-19 and it affects not just state politics but also federal politics and we're seeing that National Cabinet meeting uh, coming up very, very soon to consider a number of other measures including commercial rents. Um, But one of the things that is particularly important at the moment that a lot of people who who are listening to Triple R might feel personally impacted by is um, the loss of income that a lot of artists, comedians, actors, uh, journalists, so many different types of people who work in a creative industry, for example, are doing it tough. And we've just seen that uh, further compounded by the Australia Council's recent announcements. Could you take us through that and how that's impacting the art sector at the moment? Yeah, sure, Amy. So on Friday, the Australia Council the arts, the federal government's arts funding body announced the, the big decision about which cultural organisations would get its coveted four-year funding. Um, and these are, these are very important decisions because they lock in funding for, yes, as it says, four years for around about 100 really important small to medium organisations. Um, now, uh, it was really great news, obviously, for those organisations that got funded, but we also found out that a whole bunch of organisations had lost their funding as part of that announcement. And, of course, this is the very worst time to be slashing funding to arts organisations with the, the coronavirus crisis. Um, in the last fortnight or so, pretty much the entire Australian cultural industries have shut down. So um, it's a really, really difficult time for the entire sector. And then if you add funding cuts on top of that, then you can understand the disappointment for many of those people in the sector. And what's the reason behind the Australia Council's reduction in funding? So um, the Australia Council would argue that it's roughly the same amount of funding as the last lot of four-year funding four years ago, but they've shuffled the deck chairs. So some organisations have missed out and some new organisations have come in and that's really positive for them. Um, But it's in the context of a 20% reduction in funding to the Australia Council overall over the last seven years. 
And what that's meant is basically that, yeah, they've been able to fund fewer organisations. So the last round of these funding for small organisations had about 130 organisations funded and this time around it's 95. So they've, there's a significant number of organisations who've lost funding. Um, and, the, and the answer is basically because the government hasn't put enough money into the funding pool. And uh, obviously the arts have been really a target of cuts and also controversy um, previous to that when we saw George Brandis as um, the Minister for the Arts. What has um, the Coalition's legacy been in terms of the arts sector, which uh, clearly has been struggling with funding for quite a while? Yes, well, you mentioned George Brandis and his excellence fund that happened in 2015 when $105 million was taken from the Australia Council to set up an ill-fated parallel program of arts funding. Um, some of those funding cuts because of that 2015 raid are still flowing through the Australia Council because of that. That Not all the money was ever returned to the Australia Council after that raid. And um, so that's that's still really a legacy of George Brandis's time as arts minister. And then on top of that, there's been a, a kind of creeping austerity. There's been very, very um, incremental funding cuts across sort of seven years since the coalition took office in 2013. And as a result, they just don't have enough money to go around to fund fund some of these very prominent and famous arts organisations. So some of the organisations that lost funding are companies like La Mama, one of the most famous theatre companies in Australia, the Sydney Review of Books, uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Sydney Writers' Festival, uh, Polyglot, uh, Liquid Architecture. So, so there's, these are very <clears throat> prominent and well-known arts organisations I don't think anyone would claim that they didn't deserve funding on merit. It's really just that there's not enough money to go around. And do those arts organisations get any feedback based on the decisions that were made? They do get a limited amount of feedback, but they aren't really told exactly what the problem was. Uh, it's a kind of a ranked process, right? So um, everyone's thrown into a pool and then they have people who assess the grants and then the top people who, who get the highest marks, they get the money and everybody else doesn't. So you basically just get told that you weren't good enough. Mm. Um, one of the issues that I just uh, floated a little bit earlier was around people who do work broadly in the arts sector have been really impacted in an obvious way because, of course, live music um, can't go ahead in the traditional way that it had. And, of course, there are many online performances, but um, the income stream that a number of musicians um, would have made uh, has been reduced drastically. Same with comedians, with, of course, the Melbourne International Comedy festival not going ahead, um, actors not being able to be on set uh, to film TV shows and movies. There are so many different ways that this is impacting the arts sector and a lot of those people, um, as well as their union, the MEAA, have been advocating about how they have been affected and they're feeling like they've been really left out. What's your take on that and their claim to um, support? So, um the federal government, as we talked about last week and indeed the week before, has announced a big stimulus package, including this $130 billion job keeper arrangement. So that's going to go to federal parliament this week and be voted on, and we expect it will be passed. Um, and what that means is that companies that have a reduction in their income due to coronavirus will be able to apply to the federal government for this funding, and they'll get 
uh, $1,500 per fortnight that they have to pass on to workers. Now, the problem with that is that some of the workers are going to fall through the gap. If you're a casual worker who has worked for your employer for less than 12 months, you won't be you won't qualify for the JobKeeper for the $1,500. You'll have to go onto Centrelink, um, which is a, a lower amount of, of funding, low amount of, of income. Um, and we think there's about a million workers across Australia who will miss out because they're casuals who've worked for less than 12 months for the same employer. And of course, that's a big part of the arts sector because um, many people are working from job to job. They're working for a short period of time, maybe across a couple of different jobs in a fairly insecure and precarious industry. And so they're just not going to qualify. And that's the big concern, particularly for the arts sector. Some of these organisations will qualify for the stimulus package, and that's really good news. Um, and so we should we should point out that uh, the Arts Minister, Paul Fletcher, has said that he thinks that there could be billions of dollars of stimulus flowing to the cultural sector through the government's stimulus. We don't really know for sure yet, and it will depend on, firstly, the JobKeeper package getting legislated this week in Parliament, and secondly, exactly how the ATO draws the eligibility boundaries. Indeed, and there's one other element that has been raised recently where obviously it's up to the employer to apply for JobKeeper. It's not up to the employee. Um, an employee could obviously apply for the job seeker allowance, which is new start essentially, um, if they've yep. lost their job. But there are um, conversations where some employers have said, no, it's a bit too hard. We're going to fold. We don't want to keep employing people. We'll just have to restart every everything, um, you know, in however many months' time. And so that means that some of those people who are hoping to have the JobKeeper allowance have been told um, no go to the job seeker, and then they've also then been told by Centrelink, but you're eligible for JobKeeper. So they're kind of getting in a bit of a cycle with some of their employers, and that's been corroborated by a number of federal MPs who've also said that they've had calls to their offices around claims of that nature. Do you think that's going to be an issue? Is that um, that those workers are reliant upon their employer to decide if they would like to take that up? Yeah, undoubtedly. I think there's a whole a bunch of issues that we don't really know how it's going to work yet because we haven't even seen the legislation yet and neither has the Labor opposition. So we're still yet to see exactly what it's going to look like, how it's going to work exactly, and then how the ATO is going to apply the eligibility. I think um, there is a concern there because, yeah, it's a it's a package that's paid to businesses, not to workers. And so the workers are dependent on their bosses to take up that stimulus package. Yes, and we've seen uh, discussions in the trade unions around wages and making sure that uh, workers' wages are not reduced and that they're not uh, messed with. This is something that's certainly a concern for Sally McManus, who is the Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, and uh, many people have said she's been certainly a key figure behind the scenes in the negotiations for this JobKeeper package. What has been the role of the trade unions and what are their concerns around this package? Well, this, this has been an extraordinary period, actually, because um, for the first time, really, in the entire coalition government, the ACTU has actually had a seat at the table, and um, union leaders like Sally McManus are finally being listened to seriously. Um, I understand that she's been having daily phone or Zoom hookups with Attorney General Christian Porter to try and um, work through 
through the details of these stimulus packages. Um, so I think that's kind of really interesting um, for a government that's been viscerally opposed to organised labour throughout its entire existence. Um, suddenly, in an economic crisis, um, they've turned to the union movement because they realise that people like Sally McManus actually have a lot to contribute. Um, whether the ACTU will get everything that they want out of this, I, I don't think they will. And at this stage, we know um, that where you know the ACTU is campaigning strongly for casuals to be included, and also for overseas workers, for people on visas, um, international students, for example, and migrant workers. They also don't qualify for many of these stimulus measures, um, and there's a real concern over the welfare of those people as well. So there's a real press to try and get everyone included in the stimulus at the moment, and so far the government's holding out. So it's refusing to extend the stimulus to those casual workers who have been employed for less than 12 months and also to migrant and international workers. Indeed, and also Labor, the opposition, has a role to play and they've said that they want to... um, take a constructive role in this in these negotiations they want to support it but of course they're not uh, once they need once they see the legislation they might have a better idea of what some of their uh, essential criticisms are but they do feel like there is some uh, movement Christian Porter the attorney general has really suggested he's not really interested in changing or tweaking things and uh, of course we mentioned there the 1 million casuals who are unlikely to fall into the job keeper subsidy um, what do you think Labor's role might be tomorrow when a number of parliamentarians, of course not all of them, but a number of them do descend over into Canberra and meet at Parliament House um, to sit? Yeah, very, very interesting question, Amy. Um, <clears throat> at this stage, we, we don't know basically is the answer, so it would be really interesting to see. Labor has been working hard on this and trying to press the government to take action Um It's fair to say that the wage subsidy idea, originally it was uh, implemented in some European countries like the UK um, and some of the other European countries, but Labor called for it first in Australia. um, And for three weeks, the the federal government said that they weren't going to do it. And then they caved and did JobKeeper. So Labor's played an important role in pressuring the government to take action. Labor remains on the outer in terms of being invited into the National Cabinet. The National Cabinet is still a cabinet of the state premiers and Scott Morrison. Um, And this week, Parliament's been recalled largely to vote on that JobKeeper package. So um, it'll be interesting to see um, what details emerge through the JobKeeper legislation. And Labor's Labor's rightly pointing out that, um, that, that at the moment, Parliament's not going to be meeting until August unless the government recalls it. And so there is a lack of scrutiny and Labor's also called for some kind of committee to be set up to scrutinise the government's response to coronavirus and also the economic stimulus measures. Indeed. And uh, it's not just Labor calling for this Senate committee to oversee the government's response to the coronavirus. We've seen a number of key crossbench MPs, including Centre Alliance Senator Rex Patrick, backing a proposal for the committee, but also for more frequent sittings of Parliament, um, and that they don't believe that uh, the government should be suspending Parliament for public health reasons, that there are other ways for Parliament to meet, just like in other areas of the world. And Labor has 
continually in the last week to two weeks been highlighting the fact that they did not vote for the suspension of Parliament and that they are still very much adamantly against it and will uh, use Wednesday as a point of protest to say that this should not continue. How likely do you think they might be in um, getting any concessions from the government? Um, Well, I expect the government is going to have to continue to recall parliament because it's going to need to pass laws and amendments to legislation. So uh, to some degree, I think the government is posturing about keeping uh, parliament closed until August. I mean, they've recalled it this week already. Um, And I think Labor's right here. We need scrutiny. I mean, this is the job of parliamentarians is to pass laws and to scrutinise the workings of the government. And surely in a national crisis, that's more important than ever. Exactly. And uh, there has been another thing that last night Chris Bowen was uh, claiming Labor's success on, which was about getting the government to change uh, requirements for international nurses to be able to potentially work in our system. And there are a number of elements that the government is looking at to enable that workforce to be working in their own profession rather than, as he said, um, than they are picking fruit to extend their visas. What are your thoughts on Labor's role in that area of the workforce kind of trying to boost um, the healthcare profession and system? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's a good proposal, but I think it highlights, um, in fact, the the government's confusion over migrant workers um, because clearly there's a problem here with um, a bit of mixed messaging. On the one hand, Scott Morrison over the weekend told people to go home um, if they weren't able to stay in, in Australia they needed welfare. And of course, that that's simply impossible for many people. There aren't the flights to do it. Borders have closed. Um, their own countries are not accepting entrance anymore in some cases. Um, and of course, that was horrifying for the university sector because uh, the spectre of the Prime Minister telling international students to go home, pretty much the quickest way to destroy higher education in Australia. Um, so there's a lot of role there for the opposition to ex- to exert scrutiny over the government. Um, you know, Scott Morrison's had a good fortnight and he's had a boost in the polls, not that we care about the polls, obviously, but um, I think, you know, people have given him some pretty good marks for his response over the last little period. But in the last few days, the government's got a bit ragged again and there's, there's a bit of confusion emerging again about to what degree we're in lockdown, to what degree we're not in lockdown, um, what's the medium-term outlook for the response to coronavirus. And, of course, rolling along underneath that is the problem of the economy, which is just getting worse. You know, now it looks like millions of Australians are out of work. Um, and so there's some really, really big challenges facing Australia, and they're not going to get any easier at all. Yes. And uh, there is one issue relating, well, many issues relating to the tertiary education sector. Um, But one of them is the fact that JobKeeper at the moment, that JobKeeper payment uh, means that universities would not be eligible and relevant for that payment. And that was obviously in the news this morning. And people have mentioned the fact that uh, universities have become increasingly reliant on casual staff and a number of casual tutors and lecturers, sessional lecturers, are very nervous certainly about the fact that international student enrolments are declining and probably will continue to decline. What are your thoughts on that and the fact that there are some kind of major exemptions? Um, I think higher education in Australia is pretty much in crisis now. Um, 
there are um, projections that universities could shed something like 20,000 jobs over the next year. Um, we know that, of course, many international students uh, will not come in future semesters um, owing to travel bans and because of coronavirus. Uh, year 12 has also been completely disrupted in most states and territories, which means we don't know if there'll be any uh, uh, university entrance coming into the system in 2021. So enrolments could be down, well, who knows, they could be down 50% next year. Um, that poses real threats to some of the smaller and more vulnerable universities. Some of the suburban and regional universities don't have a lot of money in the bank and, you know, they, they could really be in, in risk of falling over. Um, so the government, you know, at, at this stage has not announced any kind of bailout package or stimulus for the universities. There's a lot of conjecture over whether JobKeeper will apply to the universities or not. On the first round of definitions, it looked like the universities wouldn't be eligible. Now, maybe it looks like they might be eligible. We're, we're, we're really not sure. And once again, we've got to see the legislation JobKeeper when it goes to the House, um, but there's no doubt that the universities are battening down the hatches um, and we're, we're likely to see some real damage in that sector, which is, by the way, a huge employer of people. It is, certainly. Uh, it's one of our major sectors. And one of the uh, other really big issues that is ongoing and involves the federal government and the New South Wales government is the Ruby Princess cruise ship, which continues to be an issue and obviously affects people quite dearly. Um, certainly in terms of the Ruby Princess, some of the emerging uh, facts have been that there have been over 660 infections, people testing uh, positive for coronavirus, and then, of course, 12 so far who have uh, died since from uh, infection via the Ruby Princess. And uh, last night, Chris Bowen on Q&A was very critical of the government. I'd say that's um, quite light in terms of the way I've characterised that. And uh, he's certainly been talking about just how serious this is. And of course, the doctor's also saying how serious this is for the families who have lost family members because of what happened with the Ruby Princess, where um, basically the entire uh, cruise ship's passengers were allowed to disembark um, when there were suspected that there were people um, who may be infected with coronavirus. They had symptoms of a kind of respiratory illness. And of course, um, there are now 1,040 crew still on that cruise ship to over 200 with um, COVID-like symptoms. So I guess this is something which is ongoing, but one of those developments which you might like to comment on is the fact that a criminal investigation has been opened around it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that and the argy-bargy, the to and fro that we've seen between the federal government and New South Wales? Yeah, yeah. So the Ruby Princess cruise liner obviously has been the source of uh, well, the single biggest source of COVID infections in Australia. Um, it's something like up to 600 now, I believe, and um, a number of deaths, I think, um, something like eight or nine deaths. Um, so it's been a, an incredibly important vector for coronavirus in Australia, and there's an ongoing political argument now about who's to blame, okay? Who let the people off the boat? Uh, to Who was responsible for that decision? Was it Australian Border Force and then ultimately Peter Dutton? Was it by security experts in New South Wales Health? 
was it the cruise liner itself to blame? And, yeah, you're right, the New South Wales police have opened a criminal investigation into that issue. Um, there's a lot of uh, blame shifting and buck passing going on with this debate, and I think it highlights once again, firstly, um, the, I, I think the, the, the first thing it highlights is how difficult it is in a modern globalised world, and, of course, maybe we're, we're now leaving that globalised world in the future, um, but... You know, it shows how hard it is to to keep borders contained. Borders are naturally porous, and it's very difficult to stop um, people moving across even hard geographical borders like sea borders. But I think it also shows, once again, um, how the coalition government has let its ideological proclivities, its obsessions, get in the way of the security of Australians. So for years and years and years, we were told that Australia had strong borders, that border protection was the most important policy for the coalition government. Scott Morrison told us that he stopped the boats. Peter Dutton um, embarked on round after round of security theatre, you know, always doing press conferences in silly outfits and in front of, you know, guys with guns and masks and uniforms. Uh, and yet when the, the big crisis came, when the actual t test came about how could we keep Australian borders safe, what happened? We let a whole bunch of people into the country without proper quarantine. And I think that shows, you know, that um, they had their priorities wrong. You know, they, they were looking for small boats coming from the north when they should have had their eyes fixed on the biosecurity implications of coronavirus. Indeed. Uh, there's a lot that is developing and emerging. And, of course, National Cabinet cabinet will be meeting, I believe, today. And we'll also see the modelling that we've been waiting for, that the federal government has been basing its restrictions and decisions on. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I'll be interested to see if the modelling does come out, Amy, because, of course, the government has been promising it for a while and then they keep they keep not giving it out, right? So mm. um, they said that they would give it out last week um, and in the end they didn't release it. It will be very interesting to see what this epidemiological model says. Now, of course, you know, there's a, a debate in the expert community about whether the modelling is right or not and who's got a qualification to talk about the modelling. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist, obviously. I'm not a virologist. But I think as citizens, we need to know the basis on which the government is making these very, very important decisions. And so it will be very interesting to see what the expert community has to say about these modelling figures when, if they are released. Yes, well, it's certainly um, not a new thing for governments around the world to release their modelling, and Australia is behind in this regard. And I think, um, as many people have said, it would show that the government is trusting the Australian public with this information and that they uh, respect Australians and their ability to process information and, of course, will have experts able to guide the population through a complex modelling, which is certainly confusing for the best of us. Um, but it definitely does seem to be something that is pretty crucial given the start that we had with the federal government and a lot of criticism around um, a lack of transparency. And there still is um, a lack of transparency around just how much personal protective equipment we actually have and getting conflicting reports between doctors on the front line, nurses and um, the government who says that we've got enough. So it'll be interesting to see how things do progress. Um, ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Hope you do well and uh, have a, a great week and, and also a nice Easter break. 
Thanks, Amy. Yes, looking forward to not doing any more Zoom meetings for a little while. (laughs) Face-to-face only with your close family. Yes, I'll be locked in in isolation with the family and it'll be nice to get away from a computer for a while, frankly. (laughs) I have a feeling most people listening might feel the same way. Thanks so much, Ben. Stay safe, mate. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. So I'm really pleased now to welcome Anthony to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, and it's great to be with you again. Good morning. Now, Anthony, I am aware from your email newsletter that you send out, which is also just fantastic, I've got to say, um, that you had a bit of a, a trip overseas and you came back into Hong Kong and are now following their quarantine or self-isolation arrangements, and they seem to be pretty rigorous Yes, that's right. I'd been in the in the UK for a couple of weeks and, and came to Hong Kong after they'd introduced a new requirement that anyone, well, firstly, only allowing Hong Kong residents back into Hong Kong, um, and then that anyone who was coming back into Hong Kong would have to undergo a compulsory 14-day home quarantine, which is, of course, better than I understand um, some of the people entering Australia now have with uh, quarantine arrangements in a hotel. But we have to do um, home quarantine. And it was a really very impressive process that the government had put in, pra- in place at the airport for all the new arrivals. Everyone arriving had their temperature taken and then had were, were given sample kits and had to submit um, samples to be tested for the virus. Um, and then everyone has to download an app onto their phone um, and are given a, a wristband, which has a sort of little tracking device in it, I guess, some kind of a chip that then connects through Bluetooth to the app on your phone um, and through the location services on your phone, um, makes sure that you are following the home quarantine requirement. And apparently this this device, if you leave your home during the 14 days quarantine, um, will alert the authorities so that they can come and, and, and check on you breaking the quarantine. Now, on, the, on the one hand, it sounds a little bit dystopian that the government sort of clipped these devices onto you and, and, and are tracking your location. But um, on the other hand, it is only for the 14 days of the quarantine. And it is frankly reassuring to know that everyone coming into Hong Kong and knowing that most of the new cases we're seeing here now are imported cases, that they actually are being tracked and enforced pretty effectively by the government. So um, it, was a, it was a real procedure entering, but extremely efficient in the way I guess you'd expect Hong Kong to be and, and, and very thorough. And it was, was really quite reassuring to get a sense that the government here does seem to have the, the, the process of keeping the virus under control pretty well, um, pretty well handled. Mm. And what day are you up to in that 14-day period? Uh, I've only got a couple of days to go now, so Thursday night, midnight, I'll be uh, I'll be free. Uh, so uh, yeah, almost there. It's <laughs> very exciting. Um, no doubt That's... you must be quite well. Then you're not feeling any symptoms. Yeah, completely fine. Yeah, um, yeah, have no, no issues at all. And in fact, the Hong the Hong Kong government. Um, release every day updates of course on, on infections and one of the one of the one of the items of data they release is um, information on every imported case that tested positive which flight they came in on and which seat they were sitting in wow. um, and I've been check I've been checking that list very uh, closely of course and I'm happy to see that there were no cases on the flight that I came in on so um, that was very very reassuring as well 
it's really amazing the level of um, technology use that we're seeing in places like Hong Kong and also Singapore, who seem to really be far ahead of um, Australia in that use of um, technology. It took us a number of weeks to even have a website with a dashboard of the number of cases and which local government area they were in. So um, it's really great to see that there's a lot of advanced use of technology elsewhere. Yeah, and I think it helps for places like Hong Kong and Singapore in particular that they are geographically so small. So it's, I guess it's easy for a government to administer administer in that sense. Um, and look, the, the, the tech here is pretty good. The internet coverage here is fantastic. And I've got to say, I had to chuckle a bit when I saw some statement coming out of Australia that the government was worried that if everyone was working from home in Australia, the internet might struggle to cope given <laughs> the, the, the internet infrastructure in Australia. We don't have any of those issues here. We have um, you know, super fast connections to everyone's homes and, and very good coverage mm. with mobile data. And so, yeah, I, I think that's one of the benefits of having a geographically small place. Yes, yeah, same as in South Korea. And I think if the internet mm. wasn't good, you would definitely be hearing about it from the citizens. Yes, that's right. Now, um, you do mention uh, in a number of, well, in one of your articles that I believe will be released that um, Hong Kong and other um, countries have had a history of dealing with uh, large-scale epidemics and it would be Mm. really not lost on many um, that those would remember the SARS epidemic um, from the early thousands in 2003. So um, in terms of Hong Kong's experience, dealing with an epidemic, um, what do you think they've really learned that they've put into place here? Because I note that um, as far as I'm aware, Hong Kong still has four deaths out of about 915 positive cases. Yeah, SARS hit Hong Kong really hard back in 2003. It was the place that had, I think, the most deaths than any other place in 2003 with SARS. Um and really had a big impact on the community. But but luckily, SARS, unlike the, the current uh, COVID-19 virus, was easily to detect at, at an early stage. And so those cases that were detected were quickly hospitalised and isolated. So it didn't have the same spreading effect through the community that it had with this virus. But what it meant was that there were, there were sort of two things that resulted from the SARS experience in Hong Kong. The first was that the, the, the government just had developed its its mechanisms and its machinery and its policies to to deal with an epidemic like this. And, and I think the healthcare system was well prepared for it so that when this virus came around, there were already procedures that they had used during SARS that they were able to sort of activate and, and, and update and use that experience in in managing SARS to help them manage this virus. But but secondly, and, and perhaps more importantly, is just the community awareness. Ever, ever since SARS, things like wearing face masks in public has become a you know, very big part of, 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 of local culture in Hong Kong. You know, during flu season, you know, everyone will be you know, wearing masks on the on, on the public transport. If you if you cough on a train in, in Hong Kong without wearing a mask in flu season, you know, look out for the, the angry looks you're going to get from the people around you. So there's a very high community awareness of of, of hygiene, of the spread of disease, of the need to take precautionary measures like, like wearing face masks and these kind of things. And I think that community awareness has really served Hong Kong well. Um, the moment that Hong Kong has learned there was this virus spreading in, in the mainland China across the border at the beginning of this year, um, the community really reacted pretty quickly in terms of everyone um, getting face masks. And to the extent that there there was panic buying of face masks in Hong Kong and they all sold out, Um, people stopped going out as much. They sort of just naturally began to to do social distancing and self-isolating 
as a natural reaction, you know, just given that that experience of SARS and and knowing the right way to behave to, to stop this becoming worse. So uh, that, that's really the the two key legacies of, of SARS that have helped Hong Kong through this particular crisis, at least so far. Mm, it's very interesting. And um, yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine with some of the packed trains that you would normally get in Hong Kong that uh, it would be very dangerous for anyone to be coughing, um, certainly for their social standing. Um, now, I, yes. would, <laughs> I, I would like to go um, to your book, City on Fire, uh, which is subtitled The Fight for Hong Kong. Um, it would be pretty difficult for anyone to have missed the Hong Kong protests last year. They were so uh, visible, so strong in numbers and also covered fairly well for a significant uh, portion of time in the media around the world, of course, to varying degrees of nuance. Um, but I would like to, I guess, go back to the chronological start, um, because when I was reading through your book, there was one story that I really felt I hadn't actually had exposure to, though I'm sure in Hong Kong it would have been different. And that was about the case that uh, first pushed off this extradition bill and, and moved it along into, into creation and um, was taken up by Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong. And this is the um, absolutely horrible um, crime that was committed or has been alleged to have been committed in, in Taipei. And I was wondering if you could share with us that story because I feel that that is an important um, point to the start of this uh, protest movement. Yeah, um, certainly, and it's a very tragic story. So, uh, the really the the whole saga of of the protests last year in Hong Kong began with um, uh, a murder. Uh, what happened was there was a young Hong Kong couple, um, uh, a nineteen year old guy Chan Tong Kai and and his girlfriend Pan Hu Wing, who I think was twenty at the time, um, and they'd been dating for a few months. They'd met working in a small business up in in in, in the Hong Kong suburbs in Kowloon, and they. Uh, uh, they'd been dating for a few months. Um, she fell pregnant, um, although she'd kept her pregnancy to herself. And then the two of them went on a romantic weekend getaway um, on Valentine's Day weekend in 2018. And they went for a weekend getaway to Taipei in Taiwan, a, a pretty common pretty common destination for Hong Kongers looking to get on a weekend away. They have a lot of good food in Taipei. They have night markets. They have um, hot springs in the hills around Taipei. And it's a, it's a very common place for young Hong Kongers to go. So the two of them went on this this romantic getaway. Um, unfortunately, while they were there, um, they got into an argument, um, uh, a fairly heated argument. Um, during that argument, um, Poon told Chan that the the baby she was carrying was not his, and and reportedly he she showed him photos of her uh, uh, in intimate situations with other men. Um, and he flew into a rage um, and and allegedly or reportedly. Um, murdered her, strangled her. Um, then he packed her body into a into a suitcase, a, a large pink wheelie suitcase. Um, and the next day, got on the the subway in Taipei and went out to the Taipei suburbs and 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 dumped her, dumped her body in a park, uh, and then returned back to Hong Kong uh, without her. When he got back to Hong Kong and and her parents realised that she was missing, he simply said that he had. Uh, he had uh, they'd had a fight and they'd gone their separate ways and he didn't know where she was. But the examination of the, the CCTV footage of, of what had happened in that hotel and the comings and goings of the hotel you know, quickly revealed that, that, that something was amiss and police interviewed 
Chan in Hong Kong, and he he confessed, you know, confessed to the murder. Um, and then the Taipei police, and he told told police where the body was, and and the Taipei police found the body. And there was really a, a very poignant scene that um, when the Taipei police were in that park looking for the body, it's apparently a Taiwanese tradition to to call out to the spirit of the dead person. And so they were calling out uh, these police as they were searching the field were calling out, Miss um, uh, Poon, please help us find you so we can t- take you safely home. Um, and indeed, they found the body where where Chan said it was it was located. Now, so far, this is sort of the kind of you know, tabloid, perhaps murder story that you'd read about anywhere, and you wouldn't think that this would lead to anything in particular. Um, but it was a particular conundrum because um, the murder had happened in Taiwan, in Taipei, which is a separate jurisdiction to Hong Kong, and Chan was now in Hong Kong and had allegedly confessed to the murder in Hong Kong. But under Hong Kong law, he couldn't be put on trial for murder that was committed outside of Hong Kong. Hong Kong law only allows you to be tried for murders that are committed here on on Hong Kong soil. And at the same time, there is no extradition agreement between Hong Kong and Taiwan to extradite suspects to face trial in, in Taiwan. And so the Hong Kong government was was faced with this conundrum. What do we do with with this this guy who has apparently confessed to this to this murder? We can't try him here. Um, how are we going to be able to get him to Taiwan to face justice? And what the Hong Kong government hit upon as the solution, and there were there were there were many other possibilities, but the solution they hit upon was to introduce a new law that would allow uh, criminal suspects to be extradited anywhere uh, to face trial. Um, and that would include Taiwan, but also, most importantly for the people of Hong Kong, it would also include mainland China. Um, and that was really what started the whole controversy, that this law, the government said, was really introduced intending to, to really have justice for, 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 for Miss Poon, for her murder, was in effect through the back door, um, breaking down that firewall between Hong Kong and mainland China, enabling the mainland Chinese authorities to reach into Hong Kong and, and grab people and take them back to the mainland for criminal trials in, in mainland courts. And so that was what began the whole protest movement, um, uh, which devolved into then the, the months of, 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 of violent protests that we saw on the streets here last year. But it, it is a very sort of very tragic story. And I think the most tragic of all, the, the point that really struck me was these two young Hong Kongers were exactly like the thousands of young Hong Kongers that I saw on the streets protesting last year. And I couldn't help thinking that if this had all come about through a different confluence of events and and that tragic murder hadn't occurred, they would probably be out there side by side with their friends and and classmates um, protesting in the way that everyone else was um, last year. So it's a it's a it's a it's a really a, a tragic case. As of as of now, Chan is is still in Hong Kong. He's um, said that he's willing to give himself up to the Taiwanese authorities. He's he's willing to cooperate. He's he seems very remorseful. Um, uh, but so far, the legal wrangling has continued, and I don't think that's yet reached a point where he's managed to to get to Taiwan to face trial. Yes, and um, one of the elements of this was that when uh, Chan came back to Hong Kong, he used uh, Poon's ATM card, and so mm. he was tried over in Hong Kong for that smaller offence of money laundering, which he pleaded guilty to. Um, is he still in prison? 
No, he was released actually while the protest was still going on last year. So yeah, he had he confessed to that money laundering that money laundering case, and he'd been initially jailed. It was only a short jail sentence for that. Um, uh, I think less than a year. Um, and so that was one of the things the authorities were using to try and push this extradition law through. They were saying, look, he's he's only in jail for this money laundering charge. It's a stopgap measure. He's going to be released, and we need this resolved and we need this new law to be in place um, before his money laundering sentence finishes so that he can quickly be extradited immediately after that. But um, So that was the excuse they were using to try and push the law through. They weren't successful. The protests stopped that from happening. Um, and so Chan was was released when he finished his sentence um, late last year and apparently is in a, is in a, a safe house somewhere in Hong Kong. And uh, in terms of the extradition bill and its original form and the crimes that were encompassed within it, it wasn't obviously just murder that was part of Mm. that um, bill. What were some of those other crimes which really formed the crux of um, the concerns of people and uh, whether they might be tried over in mainland China for other crimes? Yeah, so that was was the issue. It wasn't just violent crimes or the kind of serious crimes that you would expect um, would be covered by an extradition bill, things like drug trafficking or those sorts of things. It it really covered a a very wide range of crimes. Um, uh, It it would capture things like um, uh, bribery and corruption, uh, vice offences, offences involving uh, uh, theft offences and these sorts of things. And and also, more importantly, it would involve aiding and abetting as well. So the net was cast very wide. Um, When the the business lobby suddenly got wind of this and understood the implications for them, if they'd been involved in, for example, um, commercial crimes in the mainland, they quickly lobbied and the government sort of caved to try and win their support by excluding certain commercial crimes from the scope of the bill. So things like um, bankruptcy-related um, crimes, corporate crimes were, were excluded. And that was sort of a, a sop to the business lobby. But corruption was still included. And that was something that was really of concern to the business lobby. Because um, uh, as one pro-Beijing business sector politician said in a, perhaps a moment of unguarded candor, you know, everyone has, to, effectively, he said, everyone has to, you know, bribe people in the mainland to get business done. That was just sort of the way we operate. Um, and so they were very nervous that they would suddenly find themselves um, at the wrong end of an extradition request for some bribery offences in the mainland. So um, it was it was really very broad. And that was, that was part of people's concern. Yes. And um, over in the mainland, China, we've seen Xi Jinping, the president, be quite open about the fact that he was conducting um, anti-corruption campaigns campaigns and um, certainly picking up figures that he believed had been engaged in corruption over in mainland China. So that was one element that um, certainly was already happening over there. Mm. Um, But you also highlight that there are or were a couple of cases, um, one around uh, book publishers who um, had also kind of mysteriously disappeared uh, and there were concerns around the kind of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, Um, some Mm. of the academics who have um, been quite open in their criticism of um, the Chinese Communist Party government. What are some of those contextual considerations that concerned a number of um, Hong Kongers around free speech and and those issues? Yeah, so this was something else that was was at the, the back of people's minds when they were starting to get worried about this extradition law the government was proposing. Um, there'd been a couple of cases in the past uh, where effectively mainland security agents 
had come into Hong Kong and effectively abducted people across the border. Um, and there were two particularly notable cases. One was the booksellers case that you mentioned. There was a publisher here in Hong Kong that really made its had a business of publishing fairly salacious books about about mainland Chinese politicians um, and mainland Chinese political issues. Um, you know, fairly thin sourced, um, sensationalist stories about you know uh, Chinese leaders and their mistresses and their ill-gotten gains and these sorts of things. Um, now, all of that is is perfectly legal to publish in Hong Kong. There is freedom of speech and freedom of the press here in Hong Kong. But obviously, having these kind of books, and they were often sold at the airport, and mainland Chinese tourists would sort of snap them up at the airport and take them back home to read, um, was really rankling the authorities. And so a number of these booksellers were uh, abducted, um, some from Hong Kong, uh, one from his holiday home in Thailand, Gui Minhai, a very notable case. Um, and they were taken back across the border and imprisoned for a, a period of time. Some were eventually released. Um, Gui Minhai is still under arrest in the, in the mainland today. Um, and so that was the first case. The second case was a, a mainland billionaire called Xiao Jianhua, who was um, uh, known as a, a banker to China's elite. Um, he was a very, very wealthy man. He had, again, like many others, fallen under suspicion of, of corruption and decided it was safer to be out of the mainland. So he was living at the Four Seasons Hotel in a penthouse suite here in Hong Kong. Um, and he also was mysteriously taken away in the dead of night uh, and spirited across the border by mainland security agents. Now, uh, on the one hand, people were saying, you know, look, you know, if, if, if China does this, you know, even without an extradition law in place, um, imagine what will happen when they have one and they can have free reign to take whoever they want, you know, through the legal system. That would be even worse, at least when they're forced to kidnap people. There's some pretty adverse PR with that. Um, and, and the government responded and said, look, we've specifically excluded political offences from the bill. So the extradition law specifically said if someone's accused of political crimes or political offences, they won't be able to be extradited. But everyone quickly noticed that you know, these people, even the people who were abducted, were not specifically abducted for political crimes. Xiao Jianhua would have been said to be um, uh, taken back to face bribery offences, which were part of the bill. The booksellers um, apparently were, uh, were charged with illegally selling publications across the border into mainland China through their mail order business. Um, and Gui Minhai was facing charges from a traffic offence from, from 10 years ago. So people said you know, that, that protection of excluding political offences is not very effective when the mainland will always find other reasons or other excuses to charge people and extradite them if they want them back. So these cases where people had clearly committed political wrongs and were, you know, gotten on the wrong side of the authorities in the mainland and, and then were abducted, abducted across the border, really put people on edge. And, and the prospect of an extradition law that made that even easier for the mainland authorities was really one of the things that, that brought people out in such strong opposition to this bill and, and started the huge protests. Mm. And do you think it would be safe to say that the uh, Hong Kong government or administration uh, were caught by surprise with the um, not just apprehension but real pushback, strong pushback that they initially received from the Hong Kong community and uh, do you th why do you think they may not have been anticipating that kind of pushback? <clears throat> yeah, um I think they they must have been surprised. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have ended up with with two million people on the street. So you 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 have to think that you know no government would proceed with something thinking that it would generate that level of opposition. Um, so I think they must have been surprised. But as to why they were, that remains something of a mystery to me because all these these issues that were of concern to people the the the, the bookseller case of the bookseller abduction 
questions, the, the, the questions with rule of law across the border, the, the anxiety in Hong Kong about mainland influence, none of these things were, were a secret. They were out in the open for everyone to see. And so why the government didn't make the connection um, is, is frankly a bit of a mystery. Now, one reason why they mightn't have is that just a, a year earlier, the government had similarly had a proposal to uh, open up a new train station in, in Hong Kong, the West Kowloon high-speed rail station that connects to the high-speed rail network across the rest of mainland China. And as part of those arrangements, they wanted to have uh, make it a sort of a, a one-stop process for people to get on the train and travel across the border into the mainland and have all the, 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 the immigration and security checks in one place. And so they effectively leased a part of that station to the mainland authorities who were then able to station mainland security agents, mainland border enforcement agents, and also to apply mainland law on the mainland border side of the station, yet on Hong Kong soil. And at first that generated a bit of an uproar, particularly among Hong Kong's Democrats, basically saying, look, you're giving the mainland security authorities uh, a, a base inside Hong Kong from which they conduct they can conduct exactly these kind of operations that we're worried about. And you're making mainland law apply technically on a part of Hong Kong soil, and that doesn't that, that, that shouldn't be happening. And so there was a bit of an uproar, but once the station opened and people started taking the trains and realizing how convenient it was to, to be able to travel you know, back and forth you know, easily with, with, with no additional border checks, um, the, the uproar sort of died down. Um, and, and I think perhaps the administration thought that this would be another one of those cases where there'd be a lot of fuss and noise generated by the Hong Kong pro-Democrats, but then after the thing actually went through, things would, would die down again. And that is, that is they made the wrong gamble and didn't realise that this wasn't an issue that would blow over as easily as that last one. Mm. And um, obviously we won't be able to, to touch on each kind of protest and how it built um, incrementally. That's something people mm. can visit in your book, City on Fire. But I would like to, I guess, look at it broadly in the sense that you um, highlight that it started off uh, relatively peacefully, though still in pretty high numbers of around 130,000 with an initial kind of protest against it that was very peaceful and I guess low-key in a relative sense. And then it just kept building and building and we saw, um, as you said, two million on the streets packed into those um, really narrow streets where there's so many skyscrapers surrounding um, the streets. And then also those uh, protesters moving into other areas like the Legislative Council known as the LegCo, and also uh, Hong Kong Airport. There were so many kind of major pivotal moments and key disruptions within Hong Kong that the protesters engaged in. And then, of course, a big standoff at one of the universities. From your mm. mind, and, and now I guess I know you were there um, a lot of the time um, and and part or at least very close to a lot of the protesters and the protests and seeing how things were up front. But now that you've had a chance, I guess, to reflect and to look at things um, in, in a really big picture view... How do you explain the gradual escalation of protests and the way that it evolved? Yeah, I think there were probably two key factors at play that led to the protests continuing for so long and getting, I guess, increasingly violent, if you want to put it that way. Um, the first was just the intransigence of the government. Um, the government really refused to engage with the protesters or the community, refused to, to discuss any of their demands, only made 
small concessions very, very slowly and very late in the process. Um, and that just really stoked frustration and unhappiness in the community. And that kept people coming out and kept them angry. And, and the mistake that the government also made was that they would make key concessions after there had been perhaps moments where the protesters had become more extreme, after they had clashed with police um, or, and, and, and engaged in more disruptive conduct was when the government then you know, turned around and made a small concession. And so, in fact, during that break into the Legislative Council headquarters that you just mentioned, one of the pieces of graffiti that, that the protesters left on the walls of the Legislative Council chamber was, it was you who taught us that peaceful protest doesn't work. Um, and so it was very much the, the, the behaviour of, of the government stoking that frustration and that anger um, and, and not really taking any steps to try and defuse the sentiment and, and, and figure out a way to negotiate with the protesters. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was is really the, the conduct of the police. Um, the police were um, put in a very difficult position by the government, to be fair. The government basically disappeared and, and the police were pushed to the front line of the conflict and the government was trying to treat this political problem as a law and order problem. Um, and therefore, the police were pushed to the front line in, in a position they arguably should not have been in. But the police responded with fairly violent tactics from very early on. Um, one of the key features of Hong Kong last year was the use of tear gas by the police. And the reason why I, I opened the book with a, a fairly detailed chapter on, on tear gas is because it just became such a feature of, of daily life in Hong Kong last year. Um, we had tear gas fired on the streets of Hong Kong every single weekend but one for seven months um, and many nights during the week as well. Um, tear gas was something that everyone became aware with, aware of. Everyone had been affected by it at some point. Everyone was trying to think about how to get around it or avoid it or, or deal with it or counter it. Um, and so just the fact that, that the police were using it so indiscriminately, um, you know, often as a first resort rather than a last resort, um, was very alarming. And then the other... Mm. Uh, sort of coercive tactics that the police were using from rubber bullets and bean bag rounds through ultimately to to, to real bullets, um, shooting a number of uh, another number of cases of live ammunition being fired at, at protesters, and, and, and thankfully no one was was killed in those instances. But this ex, ex, sort of acceleration of violence by the police and a sense that the police were increasingly not accountable for their actions led to, a, 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 again, a great deal of anger in the community. And what was interesting was that as the protests developed, they moved from being initially about the extradition bill. And, and of course, eventually, several months in, the government conceded that, that the extradition bill would not go ahead and they withdrew it, but became not only a, a, a pro-democracy movement asking for more democracy and more autonomy for Hong Kong, but also really an anti-police movement and, and protesting against the police violence. Um, and so that the, the very violence that the police were using were to try to stop the protests had the, the exact opposite effect of stoking up anger and making the protests continue. Yes, excellent points. And um, it was really interesting to see that uh, opening chapter on tear gas because it is very evocative. And um, it also... Um, highlights, I guess, some of the crowd dynamics and the ways that um, pr the protests evolved and also the way that the Hong Kongers' mentality evolved um, and hardened against the um, tear gas tactic. And uh, mm. what was very interesting that you highlighted was the, um, I guess, British legacy of tear mm. gas in Hong Kong. Could you share with us um, that, that little really interesting element to the story? 
Yeah, so uh, tear gas is, is technically a, a chemical weapon, um, and it's it's illegal under the Geneva Convention to, to use tear gas in, in, in times of war, um, as with other chemical weapons. Um, and this has been the case since after World War One. But the British colonialists, when they were faced with protests in, in India and the African colonies and elsewhere um, in the mid-20th century, suddenly faced a conundrum that they didn't want to be seen to be firing real bullets at, at, at civilians in protests, and particularly protests involving women and children. So they they figured out a fudge, and, and, to, and they figured out that they thought that the tear gas would be a better solution. And so they figured out a fudge to say that uh, if we give people warning, fair warning that we're going to use tear gas and an opportunity to escape it, then uh, that would sort of mitigate the problems of using it. And, and also, the Geneva Convention applies to war, but it doesn't apply to domestic law enforcement operations within a country. So we can use this fudge to, to get around the Geneva Convention and uh, basically use tear gas on our own people or on the colonies, the people of the colonies that we're, we're, we're occupying. Um, and so what they decided to do to sort of have this fair warning is that the police would have to hold up a, a banner saying warning tear smoke before they fired the tear gas. Um, and interestingly, they used the term tear smoke rather than tear gas because they felt that using the term gas would be evocative of, of things like mustard gas and chlorine gas and the things that were used to such horrible effect on the battlefields of World War One. So they thought tear smoke sounded more innocuous. And with this very quaint banner, that would be enough to, to justify the use of tear gas on civilian populations. And that banner is still used today. Um, every time the police in Hong Kong fire tear gas, they'll hold up a, a, a black banner that says in Chinese and English, warning tear smoke, um, and they'll fire that upon the crowds. Um, and, and so it was interesting that this legacy of colonialism, something that was used originally by the British to, to police the colonies um, is using being used today in, in Hong Kong. And the other interesting connection, I suppose, with, with, with the, the British legacy is the, 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 the link back to Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland during the Troubles was the first place that tear gas was used on, on, on actual British soil. Um, and the reaction of the communities in Northern Ireland to that tear gas, as noted by um, many observers, including Simon Winchester, the, the famous writer who was a, a correspondent in Belfast at the time, um, was that you know, tear gas really actually had the effect of bringing the gassed people together into a, into a solid community and, and, and really generating this, this hatred at the people who were gassing them. And we saw the exact same effect here in Hong Kong last year, that the community really rallied around, uh, united, and the number of times that I'd seen crowds tear gas and they'd, they'd break away and sort of run from the tear gas. And as soon as the gas dispersed, they would come back, unite again as a crowd, and they would be shouting or chanting, uh, which means go Hong Kongers. Um, and this, you could see this identity really building and forming and coalescing within the clouds of tear gas as it was happening. Um, so it's another interesting link back to the similar effect that was in Britain uh, during the Northern Ireland Troubles. Indeed. And obviously, um, one of the elements that you um, draw attention to in this book and in that chapter around tear gas was the fact that um, once protesters had figured out how to manage some of the risks of tear gas, that they um, were more banded together and obviously... Mm 
better prepared to deal with the different tactics that police were deploying. Um, That said, it didn't stop them from firing tear gas. And towards the end of the book, you literally list the different locations where you yourself were subject to tear gas. And there's too many to actually name on radio right now. But (laughs) (laughs) from your personal perspective, having been there and experienced it, um, and also just being part of the crowd and and knowing uh, firsthand how this um, protest movement was um, evolved and experienced by Hong Kongers, what were some of those things that you've really taken away that are still quite um, visceral and have left a mark on you? Um, look, I mean, certainly the, the experiences were very, yeah, very, very visceral. Um, I, I look, I think to an extent, the whole city um, is in a bit of a state of, of, of PTSD after the events of last year. I think we're probably all still processing it. I think it's interesting that this virus has sort of been a bit of a um, a bit of a circuit break, or it's rather put things on pause. It's put on pause the street protests, obviously, because people are still angry and there's still very strong sentiment in support of the protest, but people are not gathering in large numbers on the streets for obvious reasons right now. So it's put a pause to that, but it's also put a pause to the processing of the experience. Um, you know, the, the virus is consuming here as and everywhere else in the world, everyone's attention and bandwidth and, and, and media at the moment. And just the process of thinking through what we experienced and how we deal with it and what legacy it's going to leave for us as individuals and as a community, I think is, is, has been paused and hasn't been completed yet. Um, but so I think that's something that I think Hong Kong as a whole is still going to have to have to deal with. Um, but f- for me, it was, it was just really, um, of course, you know, a very, a very visceral, uh, adrenaline inducing experience to be out there on the streets, um, you know, uh, observing the protests and observing the police. Um, but I think the most striking, the most striking legacy really is just the, 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 the community spirit, the togetherness of the community, the fact that people from, from all walks of life came together, all contributed in different ways. So not everyone was at the front lines, you know, clashing with police, but there were people passing supplies, um, people creating online memes and posters, people creating artwork, uh, people sort of donating their help or their services or their skills in other ways. And it was really a whole community effort. And I think that community spirit continues to be there um, not only as part of the sort of pro-democracy movement in opposition to the government, but also in, in combating the virus. And there's been community spirit in terms of people uh, donating goods, donating face masks, helping out the needy, sharing information in the community. And, and I think this really goes to show that, uh, that, that a community that perhaps people in the past might have thought was, was um, aloof or not engaged or, 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 or isolated um, is in fact very strong and very together. And it's amazing what a community can achieve when they come together. And I hope that's something that communities around the world are discovering now as, as we all face a, a common enemy, really. Mm. And you do mention there that togetherness and sense of community. And um, it became really striking towards the end of these protest movements that there was a lot of um, scuffles breaking out on the streets and a lot of division between uh, people from mainland China and and those who support mainland China and the people who are part of the Hong Kong protest movement and or supporting that movement. And there was just a, a lot of strong words on both sides, I guess, um, mm. really getting uh, very, very much invested 
in this uh, this conflict and this movement. And I wonder whether um, where we stand, I guess, in that sense of ha- have those divisions been healing? Because I sense that there were people not just um, from mainland China and from Hong Kong, but also expats who started to feel very strongly about this issue. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's 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 interesting. This goes all, all the way back to to what you were saying at the top of the program about racism. That um, you know, you're right. There are very deep divisions within the Hong Kong community. There are a significant part of the community that do support the government and support Beijing. Uh, many recent immigrants from the mainland, um, and so Hong Kong is a very deeply divided society. And, and one aspect of the protests that we saw that was um, unfortunate and particularly ugly was this anti-mainland xenophobia. So stoked by a sense that um, the protesters were concerned about Beijing's interference in Hong Kong um, and the influence of, of the mainland in Hong Kong. And that was then by extension in the protesters' mind also applied to the influence of mainland people in Hong Kong and has indeed led to some fairly ugly racism and xenophobia among some of the protesters against mainlanders here in Hong Kong. Um, And sadly, that's also continued through with the coronavirus. People here um, have been, in some sectors of the community, blaming the mainland for the virus. In particular, I think they're angry at what they perceive as the mainland government covering up the initial outbreak of the virus. But that feeds into, again, anti-mainland sentiment, um, people calling for the border to be shut and for, for mainlanders to be kept out. And exactly the same kind of racism that we're seeing around the world um, also has manifested itself here in, in Hong Kong. So I think that that message that you, that, that very important message that you had at the start of the program uh, applies equally here um, to protesters who, who need to be careful not to mix up their their political aspirations with with, with xenophobia and, and racist sentiments. Yeah, and it certainly has been an issue that um, not just in this situation, but as you say in coronavirus, that so many people often don't realise that they're conflating criticism of the CCP government with um, the Chinese people, and that can obviously be deeply um, affecting and hurtful for anyone who um, is from the mainland China or identifies as Chinese Australian or Chinese American or, um, you know, anyone of that um, background. So I guess, yeah, it's something that uh, can often be unintentional, um, but obviously we need to pick it up and call it out Mm. when it does happen because um, you wouldn't want that to deflect from what the key point of the protest was, which was not about um, being anti the Chinese people and certainly shouldn't have been um, that. It was about something else entirely. Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, Anthony, gosh, I wish we could keep talking because <laughs> it's such a fantastic book and there's so, so much to unpack. Um, but I really do hope that uh, people can support booksellers and also authors like yourself and uh, buy their books and order it online or order it over the phone from their local booksellers. And um, and I want to say also congratulations on this book because I think it is really um, beautifully written and and it definitely shows that you've taken a lot of care and thought and um, a lot of insight into what was going on. So I really do appreciate your time today and also um, the, the great depth and um, nuance that you going to in this book thank you so much that's that's really very kind i'm really appreciate it and it's been great to talk to you once again thank you yes hope we can pick it up again right 
hopefully when you're out of quarantine, which is only two days, so I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Freedom's just um, around yeah, the corner. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I was hoping to actually have a, a, a visit to, to Melbourne and do a couple of events there, but obviously that's on hold now given the situation, but I hope to make it down soon and, uh, yeah, uh, meet everyone uh, in person that in, would event be great. In, in Melbourne. Well, we'll let everyone know when that does happen because I'm sure you have uh, a fair few fans over here. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you so much, Anthony. I've been speaking with lawyer and author based over in Hong Kong, Anthony Dapperin, and his book we've been discussing there is City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, which is out through Scribe Publications. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So I'm very, very um, pleased that we have someone of Dr. Sasha Steltzer-Braid's standing and her great expertise, and I welcome her now on Skype. Hi there. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you for that introduction. That was more than I get at most scientific conferences. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um, I, I was reading through your um, your list of articles in your bio and I think mm. I've got to say, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I was pretty uh, jealous of the things you get to study for your day job. <laughs> it sounds fascinating. Um. It is. So I'm, I'm fascinated by viruses and particularly very small viruses like um, respiratory viruses. So um, mostly I work on influenza, um, which we know about every year, and rhinovirus because that causes the common cold and it's, it's um, always with us. But yeah, this year it's, it's a little bit different and it's a really interesting time to be a scientist and to be working on respiratory viruses. So, yeah, yeah. happy to be kind of in the middle of it all. Yes, and obviously um, the research around influenza is very important each flu season mm. because there are um, maybe to some people's surprise a number of very well uh, people who fall severely ill with influenza each year, some of whom then die um, from that that virus. So there are certainly mm. um, real implications for the research that you're doing. Of course, um, people initially when the uh, SARS Cov2 virus was emerging had started to make comparisons with influenza saying oh well it's probably just um, you know like influenza it won't be much worse and as things mm. progressed we soon realized they are definitely not the same um, could you share with us some of the scientific background and information around uh, the family of coronaviruses and also what makes SARS-CoV-2 the virus um, different from others? Mm-hmm. Okay, so great questions. And yeah, I think initially um, when there's a new virus like this, we obviously we don't know a lot about it. We kind of um, putting together information that we have mostly from people who are hospitalised. So early on in the pandemic, we were getting a lot of information about um, people in hospitals in Wuhan, in China. And and so that, that looked quite dire. And I mean, it obviously still is, um, but the the situation is evolving, and so we, you know, we're we're learning things all the time, and it's it's so dynamic. Um, in terms of coronaviruses, they um, so there's there's 
more than sort of 200 viruses that cause respiratory infections. Um, and, you know, influenza and coronaviruses are just, just some of those. Um, and coronavirus, so we think that this coronavirus probably came from bats, um, in particular horseshoe bats in China, because some studies from a few years ago um, – there was a, a study published a couple of years ago and those researchers actually went into these remote caves in China um, and sampled um, the feces of bats and swabbed them all. Um, and I don't, I hope that they were paid um, quite, <laughs> quite well to do that kind of research. But basically what they found over those five years um, was a whole lot of viruses. So bats, bats carry a lot of viruses and, um, and they actually found what we now realise is is a very close relative of this new SARS coronavirus. So we do have coronaviruses circulating in the community all the time, um, but they cause very mild disease. And these, this new virus, it's um, a zoonosis, so that means that it's usually in animals and it's spilled over into humans in this in this situation. And the reasons for that we don't quite know yet. It looks like the um, binding of that particular virus onto the, the receptors of our cells in our lungs and our liver and our um, small intestine, the binding of that, that virus receptor is very strong. So it's stronger than previous SARS, so SARS-CoV-1, uh, which was in 2002. Um, so it, it's quite efficient at spreading as as we know and the reproductive rate of the virus is looks like it's about 2.2 to around three so that means for every person infected that person will infect around two or three other people but you know anecdotally there's there's evidence that it might be higher than that so I think we just have to see um, as as time goes on and we, we have more information about it. Mm. Um, mm. I'm interested, given that part of your expertise is around transmission and that's some of what people mm. in the media have been coming to you for advice on, um, and it is a really interesting thing in terms of the different modes of transmission and um, I guess how SARS-CoV-2 actually infects people, could we first up understand the different modes of transmission um, and some of the advice that um, that scientists including yourself have been providing around um, not just hygiene like hand hygiene which is kind of a very obvious one which hopefully everyone has already been doing but you yeah. never really know um, but then there are also some of these other strategies around you know actively cleaning surfaces with different um, different kinds of chemicals and also you mm. know closing the lid on toilets what are some of the rationale behind these strategies because of the mode of transmission? Great question. So um, at the moment, we think that the main modes of transmission are probably what people have heard already. So that's through um, large droplets, which are um, when someone coughs and sneezes. So whenever you even when you talk or when you breathe, you exhale aerosols. And if you have a viral infection, what we've seen from other respiratory viruses is that you um, exhale those in your, especially when you're coughing and talking um, and sneezing. And so close contact with 
someone who is infected means that you are in closer proximity of those larger aerosols. And if you breathe those in, then those viruses are probably going straight to your lungs and, and finding those receptors that they use to infect your cells. Um, so large droplets is one mode of transmission and it's probably the most important one in this in this situation with the new SARS coronavirus. Um, another mechanism of transmission is contact with contaminated surfaces. Um, and so if, if someone who is infected with the virus, again, coughs or, um, you know, sneezes onto a surface, that surface then becomes what we call a fomite. So it contains potentially infectious virus. And if you go along and touch that surface and then touch your face, and in particular, your eyes, your nose and your mouth, because those are your mucous membranes where the virus uses to get into your body, then um, you can become infected that way. So there, and then a couple of other ways that we think are important um, but we, we really don't have enough evidence for it yet, is um, faecal oral. So definitely um, SARS-CoV-2 can be found in faeces of about 30% of people with the, um, the, with the infection. So that's why I'm trying to sort of spread that message to close the lid um, when you flush the toilet and, um, and, you know, try and regularly clean your bathroom and, th and sort of actions like that can really help. And the fourth mode, which... That we're not sure. I mean, we know it happens for other viruses. It's um, very small droplets or aerosols. So as well as those large droplets, you you possibly also producing much smaller droplets with infectious virus in there, and those droplets can potentially travel further um, than than larger droplets, which presumably would be heavy and would fall quite quickly to the ground. Mm. And so with those droplets and the actual cell of the virus, um, we mm. have seen studies, different studies come out in recent times around how long it's lasting on various surfaces mm -hmm. and what they're made out of. Um, and mm. it's interesting that they do last for different durations um, depending on the surface. And um, I was wondering mm. in terms of the cell structure and its outer layers, can you explain to us why something as simple as soap is quite effective against the cell of the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Yeah, so what a virus is basically um, nucleic acid. So um, in this case, it's RNA, which is a, um, a pretty much like DNA. And then it's um, got a protein coat around it. And then it's got another um, sort of like fatty-ish coat around that. And so if we use something as simple as soap, that breaks the bonds of the, the outer surface, the outer coating of that virus. And so the virus basically falls apart and it can't infect us anymore. So that's why we know that um, detergent's really good, soap's really good, and, you know, lots of lots of lathering of soap, warm water. Um, and if you really want to decontaminate surfaces effectively, you can also use diluted bleach um, or 70% alcohol wipes, um, as we've been, I've been talking about with um, some other people as well. Exactly. Um, it's kind of important for people to realise what has been proven to have killed the virus mm. and what is, you know, maybe effective against some uh, common bacteria, but not effective against um, things like the novel coronavirus that we've just seen emerge over the last few months. Um, 
I'm interested in the fact mm. that SARS-CoV-2 has been spoken about as kind of um, embedding itself more deeply into the respiratory ta- uh, tract than other viruses, and that's why it's been affecting people and can lead to things like secondary pneumonia um, and really significant mm. issues with breathing and oxygen levels. In terms of how that mm. cell um kind of invades the body and then tries to, I guess, hijack other cells in our body. What is that behaviour? Like how does the SARS-CoV-2 behave in our body? And um, I guess why does that mean that things like um, antivirals that we currently have and antibiotics would not really be effective? Mm, So all viruses basically hijack our cells. So a virus is not really alive outside of our body. So um, viruses just basically sit around waiting for a host. Um, And so once the virus gets in your body and different viruses enter the body in different ways. Um, So we have bloodborne viruses, of course, gastrointestinal viruses. So that's mostly through the mouth Um, and then respiratory viruses. And that those viruses get in to our bodies through the air that we breathe or through us touching um, an infected surface and, and then touching our face. And so, and then Within those respiratory viruses, they have different ways of getting into our cells. Um, And so some viruses like rhinovirus will just infect your upper respiratory tract generally. Um, And so it likes likes the the sort of the cells in your nose. And so that's where your infection will be. Um, But with SARS-CoV-2, the virus... Is, is searching for um, receptors that are on your lungs. And so that's where the primary infection will be. So um, when a lot of the clinical data that I've seen um, and we're looking at where's the best place to get a, a specimen, a positive specimen, so a lot of the time it's lower respiratory tract specimens. So um, sputum, like the, the stuff that you cough up when you're sick, that, that has a lot of virus in it and also um, bronchiolar lavage and, and throat swabs are, are generally pretty good as well. So, um, yeah, the virus is sort of targeting cells on our, in, our, um, in our lower respiratory tract, in our lungs, and then once the virus gets in there, it basically does um, hijack our cells to make lots and lots of virus babies um, and that, and then those virus babies go and infect more cells and then they also, of course, get coughed out or um, sneezed out and then go and infect other people. And so that's basically um, a virus's, you know, bread and butter. Um, does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, I think or? it does. And um, I, one of the things I'm interested in as a flow-on from that is around um, viral load and the fact mm-hmm. that I guess at the beginning of someone's infection, um, they may be asymptomatic for a period and then develop, mm. I guess, the symptoms of coronavirus or COVID-19. Um, what is the element or what is the importance of viral load, um, at least the hypothetical importance, because, of course, um, mm. there's still studies being done into it around, I Mm. guess, the infection rate or the level of um, infection that can uh, be transmitted to others depending on the level of viral load a person has at different points in their infection. 
Yeah. So again, a great question and elements of that I can probably answer, but some elements I can't yet because we're still trying to work that out. So yeah, when someone first gets infected, um, the level of the virus will be quite low. Um, and then, you know, over time, and we think um, for SARS-CoV-2, it's the average time to show symptoms is around five days. So that's actually quite long for a respiratory infection. Most respiratory infections will be, um, you know, sort of 48 hours, um, maybe 72 hours, three days. Um, so that's actually quite a long period of pre-symptomatic infection um, where probably people have got high viral load and, and are able to um, transmit the virus, but they don't yet um, show any symptoms. And I think that that is a real concern with this virus is that that, that period of pre-symptomatic infection where you don't actually realise you're sick and you're potentially going out into the community, that, that is a real um, danger with this virus. And so hypothetically, the more virus you have in your body, the more symptomatic you are, the more sicker you are. But actually, we... We see a whole range. So it really depends on um, the person's immune system and their immune system response. So some people can have quite high viral loads and not have very severe symptoms at all. And so there's there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't quite understand yet about why that is and, and how are those people not in intensive care. Mm. Um, and it's probably to do less with the virus and more to do with them and their immune system and, and how their immune system is responding to the viral infection. Indeed. And obviously, um, as I mentioned at the start of our interview, some of your research is around uh, people who have pre-existing um, lung mm. conditions like asthma and obviously cystic fibrosis is a really severe condition. And um, mm. no doubt mm. anyone with these kind of chronic illnesses will feel an added level of apprehension and caution. Um, and I'm mm. sure they already do in flu season and, and other times where there's um, other sick people. Um, there's a lot of kind of strategies people have already put in place who are already at risk. But what do you see to be um, some of the reasons why these people um, who may have pre-existing conditions that either affect their immune system or their <laughs> lungs already, um, why do you think that they, um, I guess, are more susceptible to severe disease? Yeah, um so with um, people with pre-existing chronic respiratory conditions, so asthma, cystic fibrosis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, those people generally, when they get a respiratory viral infection, doesn't matter if it's SARS-CoV-2 or if it's rhinovirus, they will have a more severe infection. So um, people with asthma, if they get a rhinovirus infection, which for the rest of us is quite mild and we can, you know, kick it in a couple of days, no problem. Um, if if you have a pre-existing condition, it, it exacerbates your your existing um, condition. And so often it will mean that those people will have to up their medications. They may have to go to hospital. Um, and so they're already susceptible to um, to a more severe any kind of any kind of um, respiratory viral infection, um, 
as it is. And so I think there's probably a few factors that, that are going on with SARS-CoV-2. So um, it, the way that the virus works is that it infects the lungs, as we've been talking about, and causes a buildup of fluid on the lungs. And so that's where that kind of severe acute respiratory syndrome, the SARS part of it comes from, is that people have a buildup of fluid on their lungs and it makes it really difficult to breathe and really difficult for your cells to get oxygen. So if you already have a condition um, like asthma, which makes it difficult for you to breathe at certain times, and then you have a SARS-CoV-2 infection on top of that, I can imagine that that would make um, make it very, very difficult for those people. And in terms of people who um, have cardiac disease, um, that that uh, kind of pressure on the on the lungs um, and the, the lack of oxygen puts pressure on the heart. Um, the heart has to pump faster through the body and and that's exacerbating the, those people's already kind of um, pre-existing cardiac conditions there. So, mm-hmm. and I think that there's a lot that obviously that we can learn about that, um, but we're really, really trying <laughs> very, you know, very hard and to work out very quickly what what the state of play is. Yeah, and it's been amazing to see just how quick the science has been progressing and also how great uh, scientists have been working together across countries and even within um, a country like Australia. So that kind of collaboration with your colleagues seems to be, um, obviously it already existed, but it seems to have been accelerated in this situation. Would you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, that's, that is 100% correct. I, I mean, I've been... Um, working for 14 or 15 years in this area, and I did my PhD before that, um, and I've never seen people collaborate so quickly and so easily, share so much information. Um, we're sharing methods, we're sharing protocols, we're sharing um, genetic sequences. So whenever someone sequences a virus from the US or Wuhan or wherever it is, they put it straight up and, and share that with the scientific community so there's a real um it's just a it's amazing and it's a huge huge movement it's and and I think we all feel that um responsibility because we we're in a position to be able to do something about this um and and I think that that's pretty special and and that sort of level of responsibility we're not taking lightly. So we, mm. we're really, really trying. <laughs> Hopefully um, that reassures everyone. It is. I think it's very reassuring. That's why I'm enjoying following uh, so many scientists on Twitter because they are really yeah. opening up this field and also making it accessible mm. to non-scientists as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think as scientists we're not really trained um, – to talk to people, we're trying. We're trained to talk to each other, and um, you know, lo- use all of these acronyms and and shorthand and things like that. Mm. Um, and so, for us to communicate with with the community, I think it's really, really important at all times, and and particularly now. Um, and I think we're all getting a bit of a crash course in in science <laughs> communication. But uh, yeah, I think it's great. I. I I think yeah. it's fantastic. Many positives to come out of this. Yeah. Uh, 
silver linings. Yeah, exactly. Just finally, uh, Sasha, I'm wondering and intrigued, um, what might be your primary focus for the next few months around uh, researching viruses, um, whether that's SARS-CoV-2 or other viruses, given that Mm. we're coming up to flu season? Mm. Yeah. And can I just plug there when we talk about the flu season, if everyone could please get your flu shot. Um, Mm. I had mine on Friday. Because um, I think it's important for us to protect ourselves against what we can. Um, And this is obviously going to be um, a big one. So what I'm doing is, yeah, uh, I mean, you talked about my um, research that I normally do. I've dropped all of that and I'm just working on SARS-CoV-2 like a lot of other scientists that I know. Um, And I'm really interested in the transmission uh, because we've done some studies um, in kids with asthma and we got them to um, collect their nose samples and breath samples at home, so community sort of level sampling. Um, and I'm really interested to see whether we can do something similar uh, potentially with SARS-CoV-2 and learn a bit more about the transmission within households, um, particularly, you know, is, is SARS-CoV-2 found in in aerosols and is that an important mechanism of transmission mm. so yeah and and also um whole genome sequencing of of some of the the viruses that we get here just to learn more about how the virus is changing and and um if we have a vaccine does that mean that we're protected or and how long are we protected for um and questions like that so there's a lot to do yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very glad you've turned your mind to that. And um, I'm re- I'd be yeah. love to find out when things progress more about the aerosols, because that is really an important mm. area of research um, that we really do need to understand better. So uh, thank you for everything that you and your colleagues are doing. And also thank you so much for your time today, taking us through no the basics and also a little bit more about um, viruses, in, in particular SARS-CoV-2 and, um, and how it's behaving. No problem. That was my pleasure, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So I welcome uh, Professor Andrew Walter, who is based at the University of Melbourne and is a professor in international relations and um, also knows a lot about UK politics. And I welcome him now uh, via Skype. Hi there, Andrew. Hi, Amy. Hello. Nice to be with you again. Absolutely. You are um, a fairly regular, regular on Uncommon Sense. And uh, it is really great to be able to chat with you about UK politics. Um, Gosh, there's a lot happening. I know I say that a lot, but (laughs) I feel like this is the time where that is truly at its height in its um, accuracy. Yeah, well, the news is coming in thick and fast over the last day or or two, isn't it? So quite amazing. It is amazing. We live in amazing times. And Mm. over in the UK, um, they are in spring at the moment. um, And it is a a beautiful time, I guess, in in one's garden and in these areas of the UK. And sunshine does eventually appear. And we did see on the news that there were a number of people out in parks gathering and uh, sunbaking and enjoying the, the weather and then being subsequently moved 
along by police um, because they were making the most of the very brief sunlight that um, made its, <laughs> itself known over, over there. Um, what are your thoughts on the lockdown situation over in the UK? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been talking to a few a few UK friends and uh, having spent uh, 28 years of my life in the UK, um, I, I well remember the first days of spring and people go a little bit bonkers in the UK because <laughs> they feel as though they've been under a sort of semi-lockdown situation for a good six months or so. And when the sun finally comes out, you know, there's a, there's a great perceived need to go out into the the parks and the countryside and so on and uh, yeah completely switch gears so that's that's really tough uh, at a time obviously when the lockdown due to the virus the pandemic has been ramping up all too belatedly in the case of the UK so you know Boris Johnson and his government have been roundly criticized and coming under increasing pressure to demonstrate that they're actually not you know uh, as far behind the eight ball on this as the United States seems to be. Mm. And we did see criticism by some pretty big figures like the editor of The Lancet um, on their program Q&A really getting into the government about things like personal protective equipment and the supply of uh, ventilators and other things because they believe that the government has really been lacking uh, also on testing kits. What are your thoughts on that? Because that has been a really um, huge point of criticism beyond, of course, the most obvious and initial criticism, which was their kind of default herd immunity strategy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that, that strategy, of course, uh, has uh, was pretty quickly junked uh, after mm. they did the maths. Um, and, you know, this, uh, this relates to an ongoing bugbear of mine um, in that uh, UK governments for a very long time, and particularly in this cabinet of Boris Johnson's, uh, uh, heavily dominated by people who've gone to Oxbridge and done uh, undergraduate degrees in things that really have very little to do with the modern world. Uh, in Boris Johnson's case, uh, <laughs> he studied greats. Um, and, you know, wars between the, the Greeks and the Romans and, and so on and their various enemies um, are perhaps uh, modestly useful, but there's not a lot of science and not a lot of math done. And it seems that that particular, uh, you know, calculation about uh, it would be better to pursue a strategy of herd immunity, uh, um, you know, probably wasn't thought through very carefully at the very highest levels. Now, that said, uh, there were some pretty serious scientists, including, I believe, the chief scientist, uh, who themselves advocated this. So, one can't say that in this particular case, populist politicians at the very top simply ignored scientific advice. So it seems to be the case that British scientists really did have a different view to uh, their colleagues on the continent and elsewhere. Exactly. And we have also seen some really interesting moves in the, um, I guess, more conservative parts of society in Britain, particularly the uh, socialist newspaper, The Financial Times, who, <laughs> who came out in a remarkable editorial saying that governments, quote, must see public services as investments rather than liabilities, and essentially um, suggested that there is a social contract and that the government must almost go back to its roots of social democracy. What's going yeah. on in there? 
Well, we do live in extraordinary times. I, I just make two quick points about that. One, one is, uh, firstly, that the Financial Times, my favourite newspaper by a very, very long way mm. uh, in the UK, um, has actually always been a pretty centrist, moderate uh, uh, newspaper. Uh, the editorials are pretty sensible mm. and I think broadly positioned uh, in the sort of mainstream centrist social democratic tradition. Um, so not a dramatic shift ideologically, therefore, from the Financial Times, but it nevertheless is striking what they're calling for. Uh, the second and broader point is, uh, and it's one that I've made quite a bit in my own research in recent years, is that during crises of this magnitude, even very neoliberal governments, um, and we should remember that this Conservative Party, which has now been in office since 2010, effectively, um, has long been advocating austerity uh, of a pretty dramatic kind, uh, cutting back on public services, and yet it too is veering quite dramatically towards what I would call crisis welfareism, and if you wanted to exaggerate a little bit, crisis socialism. And we're seeing this even in the United States. So they're doing things, in other words, that a couple of months ago they would have said was ideologically beyond the pale and fiscally impossible. Mm. So we see this sort of strange oscillation between uh, a very sort of small state vision of how government should operate and in crises uh, – they, they veer towards, you know, basically throwing all of that out um, with the bathwater and the baby and and saying that actually now, um, you know, it's all hands on deck and we're going to spend 10, 20 percent of GDP to rescue society and the country and, of course, the economy. Yes, indeed. Um, we, are, we are kind of heading towards the end of the show, but I did want to touch on two important points. One was the election of Keir Starmer to the Labor leadership, which is a big development. And of course, um, there were two kind of frontline contenders. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And then also, of course, the development we've just seen with Prime Minister Boris Johnson being admitted into the intensive care unit over yes. there. Yes. <laughs> so... Um on the first, uh, Keir Starmer, uh, look, this uh, is a pretty dramatic repudiation of Corbynism within the Labour Party, which um, I think uh, reached a nadir um, in the last election. Uh, I think it was inevitable, uh, looking back, that uh, this relatively moderate figure uh, and a competent figure, it should be said, former director of public prosecution, uh, prosecutions won uh, the internal leadership contest within the Labour Party, um, and that some of the Corbynite uh, continuity candidates uh, simply failed to do so. That said, he's from the sort of moderate soft left, uh, so he's somewhere um, around the likes of Ed Miliband. Uh, so he, this is not a shift back back to Blairism, uh, but I think there's little doubt that some of the Blairites within the party who were effectively shut out of uh, any influence and power in recent years will come back into the cabinet. So it's an interesting move. I think it's uh, fantastic uh, for the UK that they finally have a competent uh, and uh, electable uh, opposition party. And just finally, Boris Johnson. On Boris, yeah. 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 Well, he said he would die in a ditch over Brexit. Uh, I guess he didn't have this in mind. Not that he's... No. Not that I should hasten to add... Uh, not Don't that there's jinx any, it. 
any news that uh, you know he's about to die, but this is serious. Um, right at the top of the UK government, we have the health secretary recovering from coronavirus. We have Prince Charles, not in government, but of course a clear, important public figure. Yep. And now Boris. So bad news for government. Um, mm. But I think it underlines, again, the contrast between the kind of jovial, casual attitude uh, that Boris and friends adopted uh, only a a couple of weeks ago and the seriousness of quite where, you know, this uh, virus has gotten to now in the UK. Yes, and um, really the death rate is um, pretty scary. We did see uh, two nurses, female nurses in their 30s die over the weekend, um, yeah. having been serving in the NHS and looking after coronavirus patients. So it is really a stark reminder about just how serious this is over there and also um, more broadly in Europe and North America. Yeah, indeed it is. And the, you know, I guess the worst is yet to come in both of those two important countries. And this is because they didn't get a grip uh, early enough on uh, so physical distancing. And uh, we're now reaping the consequences. So yeah, that, that line, uh, it seems to be bending a little bit in the case of the UK, but not in the case of the United States. So we're still seeing exponential growth in both countries. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.